Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Everyone, welcome to the 70th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Liberated. And man, Karn is a badass. Yes, Karn is a badass, but my liberation is actually from Karn. I think after GP Hartford. I've had enough of the Karn father for a little while. He wasn't too good to me this past weekend. And, you know, there's some new Dominaria cards, which we're about to get into, which maybe are further pushing me to back away from my standard stance of Karn is better than all, but... Enough Karn for, for right now. I'm liberated from his grasps. I don't want to talk about him. Let's let's talk about other modern decks or something because he completely betrayed me. I have the biggest like, wow, like infinite gratitude, like what face going on right now? I wish you could see it. I'm sure you do because you kind of said this would happen to me as I insisted upon playing Karn. I, I ate it pretty bad. You were right. One of the worst things about magic and like one of the things that i i want to just work at getting better on the most is probably like playing a deck like a week too late like a week after it's no longer good you know you're just like oh well it was so good like these last few times i played it and you have kind of like that that memory of like doing well and everything and you just can't put it down even though you're pretty sure it's bad oh yeah and you see it all the time too it's it's something you know it's not unique to me in this situation i see my friends do it all the time i see very good magic players do it all the time they had success the week prior and then here they are again with the same deck and it's just not time anymore and to be fair i think this field was so open that i can't authoritatively say that you know i thought i found some really good plans about against what i thought would be the most prominent decks and then i just didn't play them so i don't know it it felt like if had if draws had broke slightly differently or you know a top deck here a opponent not top decking there things could have gone much better for me it wasn't like i was miles off it's also not like i had an excellent deck choice or the best deck in the room or anything like that it at best was a fine deck choice um and it proved to not even be that so yeah, and modern's weird, especially when you only have one buy. I mean, there's no telling like what sorts of nonsense you can actually end up playing against. So that can happen from time to time. Very true. Very true. And, you know, I also will say that while the tournament was kind of a miss from a results standpoint, it was an awesome tournament just in terms of the people I met and, you know, supporters of the game podcast. Even my my opponents who didn't mention anything about the game podcast were still super pleasant people. I met Andrew Resor. In round five, he gave big ups to the game podcast. So I have to give shout outs to him. You know, also met a bunch of people from the game podcast discord. It was just a really awesome weekend overall. Hell yeah. I mean, that is that is kind of part of it. And especially like with, with the discord, it's just like we're, we're building a community, man. Like it's awesome. Right. And I know the community extended beyond just me meeting people. I know people from the discord were meeting each other and, you know, kind of had friends to hang out with at the event. And that's a cool thing to see. I'm glad we can do that for people. Make their Make everyone's event a little bit better. Hell yeah. So on that note, uh, we I think we mentioned this last week. We did hit our first stretch goal for the Patreon. There are sleeves and deck boxes coming. 
uh, tentatively in May sometime. So hopefully we'll have those out by June at some point. And I also switched up the tiers a little bit. I lowered the price of sleeves. So go to the Patreon, check out the rewards, see if anything interests you. And if anyone has any feedback, like I'm definitely willing to hear that too, because like I want to get these things into people's hands. Right, right. I was excited when we realized that, you know, this was something we could do fiscally because if we had the ability to, we would just give game podcast leaves to everyone on the planet. Unfortunately, there are restraints on that, but I think we got to kind of a sweet spot now where a lot more people are going to be able to get their hands on on these items and enjoy them. And that's super exciting to me. I can't wait till I see everyone sporting their game deck boxes and their game sleeves out in the wild. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be super stoked for sure. I, I kind of don't want to be the first person to do it. You know what I mean? I might wait a little bit. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying because you're going to have them in your hands first. And you know maybe we should share that experience with our Patreons, let them be the first one to bring it. But I will say that it would be pretty sweet if when we go play this team GP, we all had some nice looking game merch on our side of the table. I don't know. Todd doesn't listen to podcasts, man. I'm sorry. Oh, for, forget him then. We can leave him with crappy <laughs> sleeves. You and I will look great playing Magic. But yeah, nothing for Todd. He doesn't get any for teaming with us. Okay, so full Dominaria. I want to say spoiler because it just it fits so well, but it's like they, they call it previews now, right? Like the entire set has been previewed. Yes, it has. So we're, we, we each have a top 10. It is secret from each other. We're going to continue going with your method, which is top down, 10 to 1. And then... Not mentioning any reprints in our top 10s because obviously Land of War Elves is busted, right? Not mentioning any dual lands because obviously they're going to have a huge impact. And then the other thing that I wanted to leave off the list was like lands in general. So the memorials, I think, are quite good. And uh, you will not see that on our top 10 list because it, it would just take up too much space. And we get to talk about like the actual cards and the build arounds and stuff. Beyond that, there's way too many cards in this set that I'm excited about, where if we add these cards into the mix, I I just don't know how I would ever get down to a top 10 list. I had such a difficult time pairing this list down to 10 cards. You know, when I sat down to kind of start comprising my top 10 list, I pulled 29 cards for consideration in my top 10. I've never pulled that many cards when doing one of these before. Yeah, I have have 24, which is still a lot, especially considering we're leaving cards off the list. Right, right. There's a huge amount of impactful stuff. Is this a really powerful and large format for all these cards to enter into? Absolutely. I'm not saying all of these are going to have an immediate impact, or I don't even know the extent of change that the format's going to undergo, but there's a lot of stuff here, and I'd be very surprised if the format stays static. And regardless, these are cards that are going to shape the metagame for the next few years going forward, without a doubt. Super powerful cards. Absolutely. Definitely agree. So uh, am I going first? Let's hear it. Number 10. All right. My number 10 is Adventurous Impulse. Okay. My number seven. So we have our first point of agreement. We weren't sure if there would be agreement uh, along these top tens. So this is good. We have some commonality here. Yeah. So this was one of the late previews. This is G Sorcery. Look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. So nerfed Oath of Nyssa, but still quite strong. Yeah, my takeaway as well, you know, it has historical analogs we can point to, like you mentioned, Oath of Nyssa, Ponder, Brainstorm Effects, those type of things will always come to mind when dealing with a card like this. And I believe that there's also decks in the format already, which would be happy to add this effect. There's a lot of decks out there that are just like a mash of creatures. Obviously, Adventurer's Impulse is going to slot right into those decks, give a little selection, um, a little, you know 
bump to the mana base that some green decks are now lacking. Keep in mind, these decks were designed to have access to things like Attune with Ether, which they don't have access to anymore for color fixing. Um, so we've kind of had to look in new directions. And I think Adventure's Impulse is going to absolutely fill that role. Yeah, I mean, adding four of these to your deck means that you can probably cuddle the land. There are still some ETB tap lands in the format, unless you're playing something like Mono Green. And you can't have Land or Elves on turn one every game. So I think this should do a good job of just adding a little bit of consistency to your deck and making sure that like you can hit your land drops and hit your curve and everything like that. And uh, obviously you want to play a lot of creatures in in a deck with this, but there are just like a lot of creatures that also function as spells now. So like Ravenous Jupacabra is obviously not seeing a ton of play or anything, but it's like that's the type of thing where it's like you can use this to kind of find a spell too. Right, and I think... You know, a really good analysis of the state of creatures. Like, like they're just not what they were previously. This isn't just finding a source of damage. This is finding your answers, finding your removal, uh, and finding your threats all balled up in one. You mentioned mono green. Mono green is a deck that, like, the cards have very variable qualities at varying points in the game. You know, you don't want your giant dinosaur right off the bat. You don't always need your Brontodon to remove an enchantment, but having a little bit more selection is going to add a lot to the mono green deck, which I think was like already a close archetype. There's also some creature combo that's starting to, you know, maybe float to the surface that might be helped by having access to this impulse. So yeah, I, I don't think this is like one of those format defining cards, but it'll play a role on a bunch of decks. It's just like a great value add pickup card for a lot of different decks and uh, the other thing I want to note too is that like a lot of the cards key off legendary creatures now. So just having another card that can function as like a legendary creature is pretty sweet. Right. Excellent point. Cool. What's your number 10? So my number 10, speaking of creature-based combos, is Tashar Ancestor's Apostle. Only number 10. Only number 10. And I think, you know, if you've heard me talk about this card, people might be a little bit surprised at that. But I think the surprise comes because of how I use the nomenclature I use when talking about this card. Because I describe this card as maybe the most potentially broken in the set. But that doesn't mean it's the best card. <laughs> that means it has the potential, if things get out of hand, to kind of define the format, to be in the best deck, to be the central part of the best deck. I can see all of those things happening for Tishar. That being said, there are clear hurdles to jump through. You're talking about a four mana 2-2. Two -two. The body on its own is not impressive. The combos that I've come up with thus far, at least in standard, are four-card combos. Historically, that's not a recipe for success. There are a lot of redundant points along the combo and a lot of uh, you know, good synergies within the combo that are outside the actual loop that I really like, and that pushes me towards seeing Tishar as a potentially impactful card but i i recognize there's challenges going on and you could also talk about you know graveyard hate hits to char just any removal spell hits to char so there's a lot of kind of hurdles for this card to jump through but i think when you look at its optimal usage and and, and its max power threshold you can certainly see why i'm excited about a card like to and i know uh sam black put out an article about to in modern where he had a bunch of broken interactions in modern. And when I say broken, I usually mean infinite. You know, infinite, I think by its nature is broken, but that doesn't necessarily mean format defining. And I don't know if Tashar is going to be able to jump through all the hoops it has to jump through, but the potential is certainly there. Yeah, Tashar is the card where I've just built the most shells around by far for mm -hmm. any card in this set. And uh, Tashar is my number seven. So <laughs> our, oh, tens are, our tens are our sevens. And yeah, talk about some of these combos, because I, I wrote uh, an article last week on Star City 
where I had a bunch of Tashar just kind of like value decks basically. And people were like, oh, well, if you have like Scrap Trawler, two Moxes and a makeshift munitions, like that's infinite or something, something along those lines. And then there's another one with like Rona Disciple of Gigs. So what, what do you have? So the the Rona one I haven't looked at yet. That's interesting. I'll I'll have to explore that. But I was looking at like Avery mechanic and two Mox Opals and a sack outlet something. Oh, that's yeah, that's what it was. It was it was mechanic to Mox Ambers and munitions. Correct, correct. But it does work with scrap trawler as well. So you weren't wrong. And that's when I when I say there's redundancy okay. across these combo yeah. pieces. You know, there's multiple cards that are doing the same thing, and you know a lot of like cast triggers and, you know, looping sacrifice triggers and all of these pieces really kind of squeeze together into something special. It's just going to be finding the glue to hold them all together. And what are you doing with your infinite mana? You know, in the case of makeshift munitions, you're, you have a win condition built in, but I would want to use it maybe as a little bit more like secondary feature of a deck, a deck that's just a fine beatdown deck. So I've explored like vehicle shells where you're just using Scrap Trawler. And if your Scrap Trawler dra- dies, you can get back your Heart of Kirin. And then you have like Yeheni as a potential beatdown creature with Tashar playing a much smaller role. And the fact that Tashar can get all these pieces back if you've used them in the early game for other purposes, I think speaks in favor of Tashar. And then I liked as my kill condition, once I'm making it from infinite mana, just playing a walking ballista, which again is a card that you want to play with a lot of these kind of artifact value cards. You can do stuff like Karn to find your pieces, hold this all together, you know? So there's a lot of moving parts there, but they're complicated. And I totally get why you're building so many shells around this card. I think it's very exciting getting the pieces perfectly synergized and in the right numbers is going to be a battle and it may honestly be a battle that's never won but i think this is a really exciting card because it seems balanced so well it's right on that edge of broken where you're really going to have to work hard to pull out all of its potential it's not just like on its face broken obvious you know scarab god if i untap i'm in a really great spot it's more how can i build my deck to really take advantage of this card i'm curious to see if we get there as a community if we find out a way to exploit tashar yeah, I, th- I think we will. And there's there's probably going to be like more than one reasonable deck with Tashar, you know, like you don't have to necessarily have the combo pieces. But right. if, if something like the vehicle shell that you're describing does end up being good, it's like, OK, yeah, I mean, playing a couple of Yehennies does not seem like the biggest uh, opportunity cost, you know. Right. Not a huge cost at all. I think this is going to be the card that probably inspires the most brews going forward out of me. But like you said, the value decks they're pretty good. I mean, this is just like a, a very good fair card that if you, it could be one of those cards that if you get an untap phase, it's almost impossible for your opponent to come back. I mean, think about bringing back two to three creatures on the turn you untap with Tashar, which is not impossible. That's really not much of a stretch. There's a very playable two mana green, white legend. There's Mox Amber, a zero mana legend and, and an artifact as well, triggering historic that way. So, so there's a lot of options to get many, many triggers out of Tashar over the course of just a single turn. Yeah. And in this article I wrote, I, I made a note of some really cool things to bring back with Tashar. What's your coolest? It is 25 cards. You ready? <laughs> sure. Whirler Virtuoso, yep. Rish, Rishkar, Bomac Courier, Silvergill Adept, Siren Storm Tamer, because obviously we need a way to protect the homie. Obviously. SRAM, Stormfleet Spy, Brontodon, Trophy Mage, Jade Light Ranger, Pia Nalar, Ramanep Excavator, Renegade Rallier. Woo, the value. Yeah. Restoration Specialist, just go infinite. I like it. Not in, not not infinite, but you know. No, lots of lots of value there again. <laughs> uh Scrap Trawler, 
Fairgrounds Warden, Fanatical Firebrand. That one's on the low list, but whatever. Uh, Filigree Familiar, Gifted Aetherborn, Glint's Leaf Siphoner, Kitesail Freebooter, On Crop Crasher, Aviator Mechanic, Dire Fleet Daredevil, and Dusk Legion Zealot. I mean, that like that's a ton of different like value angles to take this card. Right. Well, now that creatures are also spells, it's very easy to find applications for this kind of trigger. Oh, and, and Dauntless Bodyguard. That's, a, that's the actual good one. Dauntless Bodyguard is good as well. A, a lot of ways to both protect and get value from Tashar. So yeah, promising times for this card for sure. Can't wait to see what comes out of it. I, one one thing that I will note is that like just pair this with zero mana artifacts. Like even if it dies, you're I think you're getting like a lot of value. You know, like there might be I, maybe you play like a two mana legend, like a Carries Ev or a Sram or something, and then you just like want to Mox Amber accelerate out this thing. But maybe you should wait until turn four. You know. Yeah, I think the longer you can afford to wait with the shard, the greater your payoff becomes. Uh, I guess pretty obviously, you know, if you get to just fire this off on turn eight with a ton of mana in play, things are going to get out of control real quickly. So. Yeah, the tough thing is that, you know, you're probably out of historic things to cast, maybe, so. You could be, but you could also build your deck, you know, again, talking about redundant pieces, something like Scrap Trawler, which keeps your hands full of these historic pieces. So who knows? Who knows where the deck's going to go? But I think there's a lot of options to kind of mitigate these drawbacks. And again, Avery Mechanic, you know, bouncing your historic cards back into your hand and getting value that way. So I think you might be able to start a chain by just having one historic card in your hand, and then you'll find ways to get value from just getting that one historic card back. Yeah, and a, a lot of the cards I listed are just things that like draw you additional cards. Like chaining Bowmat Courier with this thing just seems so sick. It does. And I also liked Treasure Mage a lot because I think that this card can function as kind of like a second engine in the God Pharaoh's Gifts deck. You might see this be the new B plan. And it's a little weird in that it's vulnerable to a lot of the same stuff that God Pharaoh's Gift is already vulnerable to Graveyard Hate, you know, spot removal. It's a little dicier against against God Pharaoh's Gift, but, you know, our braid hits them both, I guess. So uh, I don't know if that's going to come to fruition, but I, it could certainly have a home. Redundancy, yo. Yeah, that's what the name of the game is here. And there's so many redundant effects throughout the format. All right, I'm going to take a note to put that in God Pharaoh's Gift. Yep, check it out. I think it might yield some promising stuff. Cool. Okay, my number nine, Jaya's Immolating Inferno. I feel like everyone hates this card except for me. I hate it. So you're going to have to do a hard sell right now. It, it, it didn't even make my 29. So, Dude, come yeah, on. It's yeah. it's so good. If Standard is anything similar to, to what it's been, it is not that hard to have a Red Legend. Not, not that it needs to be red, but like, you know, there are a lot of good red legends, right? And this this just like kills three creatures. Like that's a huge board wipe. This is Bonfire the Damned. With a lot of hoops to jump through. One hoop, one hoop, have a legendary creature. So you're, you're convinced that that is not a huge ask and it's just something that these red decks will be doing by default anyway. No, I mean, obviously if you like build a red deck from scratch, you're not going to start with like Captain Lannery Storm and Carries Ever or whatever, but like, if Mox Amber and Immolating Inferno are the payoffs and maybe something like Tashar, you know, you're going down that route, then playing like two or three of this card does not seem that big of a deal. I feel like it is just mostly going to be online. And then you ever untap with Chandra, like, I mean, obviously that's that's a big ask and like you're you're a pretty big favorite anyway, but still, you mm-hmm. know, like the, the, the upside is there. I see the upside for sure. I think we're kind of conditioned right now to look for... Exiling removal, first of all. We know how important Vraska's Contempt, those type of cards are. I think this kind of generalized damage-based spot removal 
has trended down in recent months, but we're not playing the same format going forward. So it could be very much that I'm shaping my perceptions of this card by slotting it into the existing format. And that may be the wrong way to look at this because, you know, we're talking about a lot of powerful creatures um, that are going to be played in large numbers. You know, we just went off about a Tashar combo type deck that plays all these creatures. So obviously picking off three of them is going to be a pretty big swing and probably necessary in a lot of spots given the value that they just generated. So this might, you know, serve as a way to recoup that kind of lost value against these decks. I just think that I don't see a home for it right now. I don't think it's a clean slot into the format and that's pushing it down my list a little bit. I also think that while you see it as just one very easy hoop to jump through, I think the legendary sorcery hoop is going to be much more damning than people expect when we're actually playing games with it. And keep in mind, I haven't played any games with any of these cards. These are all intuition-based determinations. So it could be I sit down with my first legendary sorcery and I'm like, huh, that wasn't so bad whatsoever and totally changed my tune here. But for the time being, I'm, I'm, I'm a seller of all the legendary sorceries. Word. Uh, I think the Grixis ones will see play. Okay. Uh, if, if I were to pick one, it would be the black one. I, I think that's the most powerful of the legendary sorceries, but I'll give a little spoiler. None of them made my top 10 list. Word. All right. What's your nine? My nine is Damping Sphere, which I really want to call Dampening Sphere. I don't know why, but it is Damping Sphere. Why? Why is it Damping Sphere? Or why do I want to call it Dampening Sphere? Why is it on your list? Because it's the most impactful, cleanly impactful card for Eternal formats. Now, granted, Tron and Storm are kind of fading from the forefront of the metagame right now. However, this is a fine card against KCI, which just won the last Modern Tournament. I, I think it's a very clean sideboard card for Modern where you need your sideboard cards to hit a bunch of stuff. That's the only role this is going to play, but it's very cleanly effective at doing so, and I expect this card to be included in a lot of modern sideboards going forward. I think this card stinks. Even in that context, you don't think it's a, a good sideboard card in modern? I think it is a giant trap. I think that Tron is going to beat you anyway. I don't think that they're going to care about this at all. This is way less impactful than something like Stony Silence. Uh, that is true. I agree with that, but all decks have access to this card. Right, but like all, all decks have valuable sideboard slots, and they can't use some of their sideboard slots on... Uh, on like two decks that are basically fringe at this point. Well, you're you're looking at three decks, one which just won the GP. So granted, there's certainly metagames where this is not something you want. I get that. It's not every time in the history of modern where Damping Sphere is going to be an important card. But I think if you just go back, you know, a couple months ago and this card exists and Storm's running Rupshot over the format and Karn is a very big part of it too, I think this card would have seen widespread play. That moment may not be right now, but I think that moment will cycle back around in modern and this card will see play at that time. Right. But like, okay, so I think this card is basically bad against Tron. I think it is a giant trap. And I think this card was probably made by people who have not played very much modern. Because otherwise it would do something, you know, like <laughs> as, as a storm hate card. Sure, it's fine. But like, you know, you, you start taxing them on like their third spell, basically, like. I don't think that's good enough. Like they're they're gonna get to like play some cantrips and find their repeal or whatever, and then eventually remove this and and kill you. Like in the meantime, you're you're spending two mana just like skipping a turn that matters, uh, just to do nothing. It's it just seems so bad to me. It's like Storm already has to deal with things like Thalia. Like Thalia is good. It punishes their first spell. It attacks them. 
they they have a very difficult time like actually dealing with multiple thalias and stuff. But like this card, it's it's not clocking them. It's not doing anything. I agree. So I'm kind of thinking of this turn, this card in the context of something like Blood Moon, which is a card I've said isn't very effective against Tron for the same reasons you're stating right now. But the fact is it costs two. Any aggressive deck that would typically struggle with Tron can very cleanly play the card. It's no longer color restricted to something like Stony Silence or even Blood Moon, which, like I said, not the most effective answer, so I'm not arguing on behalf of Blood Moon. I don't know. I guess I I see it's... While I recognize it has points of ineffectiveness, I think its broad ability to target a specific portion of the metagame will see this as a widely played card at some point in modern's history. Uh, it may not be today, given the state of the metagame, but things will loop back around and it will prove to be a valuable inclusion against those decks. The point about Storm is interesting. I get what you're saying there. You're giving them too much access to their their cantrips and, and not efficiently presenting the clock that you need to against Storm. But there's other ways you can present clock and the fact that this only costs two, you know, as opposed to something like rule of law or something like that. I I, I don't know. It, it seems a little cleaner to me. Rule of law actually shuts them down. Like this, this card doesn't shut them down. And you say it only costs two, but two is a lot, man. I stopped boarding in Stony Silence against Tron out of my human deck when I was on the draw because it, it was just like too slow, not right. impactful enough. Like, yeah. It just, it doesn't do anything. You're talking about like, yeah, it, it like it says, I, I hate Storm and I hate Tron on the card, but I'm telling you that like, it's not going to do enough against either deck. And the fact that it's like a bad sideboard card against either doesn't mean that you're going to want to put it in your deck. Hmm. I guess we'll see going forward. I Maybe I drank the Kool-Aid on this one. I, I believe that people will play this card. I believe that people will read it and be like, oh, this this is obviously good against Tron and it's good against Storm or it's like meant to be good against those decks. But I think in practice, people are going to be like, oh, this card is way worse than I thought it is. Okay. Thought it was. It'll be interesting to see how games play out. You know, I, that wasn't my read of it at first glance. So I think that's really interesting that that's where where you take it. Time will tell. That's That's where I stand on this one. Maybe this is good in like Lantern or something or any sort of like War of Invention deck, right? Because like it is kind of bad against both, but it's like fairly free for you to just play it, like put one in your deck. Right. Being able to search one up at will. It could be. It could be. Although that's certainly not the basis under which I put it on this list. I don't think it's a in something like Lantern. I'm not saying that this card should see zero play whatsoever. I do think that there are fringe applications in decks like Lantern, but... Right. I do think that if you're playing like humans or whatever, like you don't want this in your deck. Yeah, humans is not where I would necessarily slot this. I mean, they, they have much more efficient things, but I, I get what you're saying. You're talking in a broader context, just general threat decks don't need to stop their plan to include things like this is, is your perception of it right now. Yep, okay. Uh, my eight is Divest. And I'm going to read this one because I feel like a lot of people have not read this one. Let's hear it. B Sorcery. Target player reveals their hand. You choose an artifact or creature card from it. That player discards that card. So kind of like a despise-ish type card. Obviously, that's where it gets its its lineage from. Not on my list. So you're, again, you're going to have to talk about why you think this is a player going forward. I'm assuming you're talking in the standard context right now. Yeah, all, all my stuff is standard related. Okay. Harsh Scrutiny was already very close to fringe playable. And the fact that this hits an artifact in addition to creature means that it is slightly more playable because it is less likely to just be a brick and, and miss. And Scry 1 does not make up for the fact that you are missing with Harsh Scrutiny. So 
vehicles are some things that I'm thinking about and like the random artifacts that are coming in from this set too. If, if there's like Power Stone Shard, Mox Amber, that sort of stuff. Grabbing an artifact is pretty big game for black decks. I would point that, you know, Duress is out there. So they do have access to this effect already. But you're seeing the overlap of artifact plus creature may be more impactful than the overlap of just non-creature spells that Duress already offers. Yes. I, I think being able to hit creatures is step one. At least it was in the old format. You know, there's Hazard, Phoenix, right. Scare of God, God, et cetera. Right. Right. Torrential Gearhulk, like... And, and this card, like, it it has, like, this additional text of artifact on it that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's like, you know, Rodus's Monument, Oketra's Monument, stuff like that. It's like, eh, I, I feel like this is likely at least going to hit a card against most people. I don't know that you would necessarily main deck this, or at least a lot of copies. You know, black-blue could use a tool that's, like, a little bit more tempo-positive and... There are some like mono black decks that were popping up on Magic Online a couple weeks ago. You know, I, I think this card is going to see play and I think it's going to do reasonable things. I guess I would argue. So if you're saying it's not necessarily a main deck card. So in post-board games, you don't think it's more likely that you want to target one or the other. Like you're not better served by just playing Harsh Scrutiny or playing Duress when you already know what you're up against and, and what you need to answer. Because the overlap still has to come into play if you're playing it as a postboard card, right? Or I guess you could also say it has applications against more archetypes and, and you can use it that way. There's that argument as well. Yeah, I mean, standards in this weird place where like the games go pretty long, a lot of the decks have like 25 or 26 land, and you can't really afford too many cards that are just bad top decks going long. Mm -hmm. So that is basically why I don't think that this will see a lot of main deck play. Now, if there's like there's a mono black mid-range deck that has like 24 land and maybe ways to use extra resources somehow, then I could see it, you know, like uh, something like Argul's Bloodfast, right? It, like that card desperately wants cheap interaction. And I think this card gives it to them. So hmm. you're talking about like Gifted Aetherborn, Fatal Push, Bloodfast, uh, divest, then I, I think that's like the start to a, a pretty reasonable deck, you know? Interesting. Yeah, I'd kind of thought about divest mostly in the context of existing decks. To me, I, I don't see a ton of situations where it's more likely to see play than duress and harsh scrutiny. I guess I do like it as an upgrade over harsh scrutiny, but harsh scrutiny not seeing a ton of play as it stands. So I, I guess I'm half on board but I would need to see what the metagame looks like. I think this is very dependent on exactly where this format goes to determine how much play we're going to see going forward. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, most of the creature decks have vehicles in them, which is kind of where right. the appeal for this comes from. Okay. Yeah, I could, I could get on board with that. That's it. Your number eight. My number eight is Unwind. Oh, damn. So... I had a lot of trepidation about this card. I think this is one that could potentially see no play. But historically, and I should read the card, Unwind is two colorless, one blue, counter target, non-creature spell, untap up to three lands you control. Historically, the untap up to the casting cost spells um, have been very powerful. Stuff like Snap, you know, Rewind, those cards have all seen pretty widespread play. In a lot of contexts, negate is going to be better. And it's very easy to come up with those contexts. You know, you can think of tons of times where you're only going to have access to two mana. 
But by the same token, I don't think it's really hard to present a bunch of scenarios where unwind is just game breaking. You know, turn four, you unwind, counter their Chandra, and play Glimmer of Genius. I mean, that's a huge, ridiculous tempo swing. Is that always going to come up? Absolutely not. You know, it's not the common use case, but there's a potential use case where you see that happening. I think also having access to a card like this really enables a new style of control deck that it's only playing at instant speed. And, you know, current control decks flirt with that idea, but they still have things like Scarab God or, you know, Bloodfast. You know, there's a lot of sorcery speed effects that these decks still are using. So something like this could enable the return of things like a pull from tomorrow control deck that's really just focused upon never tapping out, you know, these kind of classic control decks, if you will. So I like this card as an archetype enabler, and you can also see how it slots into existing archetypes. And that for me was enough to get it up to the number eight spot on my list. Word. Yeah. The the main question I have for this is, you know, what, what are you spending that mana on? Right. Right. Like, that that is the the situation where it's going to be better than negate, and there aren't a ton of good ways to actually spend your mana at instant speed. I I do like the scenario where like you counter their thing and then get to cast glimmer because glimmer needs the help. You know, yes. like glimmer's glimmer's super slow, which is why I, I was playing like illuminations and uh, bloodfast instead. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I could totally see this card having an impact. It it just depends on what you have to do with your mana. Right, right. And, you know, again, Pull From Tomorrow is a card that which has seen almost no play. I think it's indisputably powerful. I don't think there's many people who you'd show Pull From Tomorrow and they would say, meh, that's not really of, of power level for standard. I think the pieces just haven't really lined up around it and the format hasn't lined up around it. But cards like Unwind and another card, which is going to be coming up later on, in my review, could be exactly what those type of archetypes need to really push away from the typical uh, torrential gear hulk, you know, end the game really quickly, close the door to these old inevitability style control decks that just are completely willing to play a 25, 26 turn game that we haven't had in standard for a little while now. Yeah, I mean, the the problem with pull for me is that it was mostly just worse than casting torrential gear hulk. In most spots, yeah, absolutely. So things have to change, right? There has to be some reason why you want to get away from the Torrential Gear Hulk paradigm. Because every, everyone's going to be divesting your Gear Hulks. Boom. Okay, that's fine. That's that's Kidding. one potential thing. Uh, graveyard Hate could become omnipresent, right? That's another potential situation. Gear Hulk rotates at some point, so we're going to have to come back yeah. to all these cards. It's hard for me to see a spell this potentially powerful and just be like, no, that's never going to find a home. It, it just seems like there's something there. Word. Not on my list, but that was your eight, correct? Correct. So my seven is Tashar. Your seven is Adventurous Impulse. Right. My my six is Shauna Sisse's Legacy. This is the G-Dub Legend. Uh, zero, zero. Can't be the target of abilities your opponents control. Shauna gets plus one, plus one for each creature you control. So at least a one, one. Right. Not on my list, but very, very close. And this was one of the ones how is it not on your list? Well, look, this you're only so talking a, you're only talking a four or five spot difference. Like this was probably my eleven or twelve. Very, very All close right. to making my list. I think this card is very good. Okay. All right. Good talk. <laughs> what, what, what's your number six? <laughs> my number six is Song of Fryalize. Okay. Which is a card that I think could just pop off. Like it could be again a complete archetype defining card uh we've talked about this card before on the cast so i don't really feel the need to go super in depth with it but again talking about redundancy there's a lot of this kind of big mana effect 
you could start seeing ways, ways to chain stuff like this together. And it's kind of like a kill condition built onto the, the tail end of the saga. I think that's a really interesting spot to be. We're talking about cards like, again, Tashar. This triggers Tashar. This does something with all the mana that's floating around from all these creatures you're recurring from Tashar. And maybe you can get a nice chain going. Or maybe it's just this kind of you know, green go wide deck where there's maybe sapperlings involved. Who knows? But I think this card enables a lot of archetypes and it has some, again, historical precedent when you look back at things like cryptolithrites. So I think Song of Freyla is definitely going to make a mark in the format. Yeah, I, I like this card uh, with Angel of Invention, Walking Ballista, Tashana. Like we've talked about this card a lot. This card did not make my top 10, but it was very close. And it was basically just because I wasn't sure. Like, I think this card is one of the potentially most powerful cards in the set, but I'm not sure uh, how much play it's actually going to see. Right. Again, you know, like we said, this is one of the deepest sets in a long time. It's really hard to nail down exactly what's going to break through and what's not, because I think all the cards I have amongst my 29 selections could potentially find a home in standard. So, yep. All right. My five is boring as hell. It is cast down. My number three. Okay. One B instant destroy target non-legendary creature. This is very exciting for modern. Certainly will likely see play instead of like go for the throat and the like, which I am definitely going to enjoy. But as far as standard, I mean, it depends on how much people move towards having a bunch of legends in their deck and trying to do legendary things. And it's not like black is like short on good removal right now. Like you already have fatal push moment of craving Vraska's contempt, like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Divest kind of fits in there too, but assuming people are like, you know, playing Steel Leaf Champions or whatever, like you just you just get to cast down that thing and it's great. Right. It'll probably be very similar to cards like Go for This Throat in, you know, Merit and Besiege Standard, where it's a one of main deck, which usually everyone's got at least one target for it. And then in post board games, you can get more copies where it's the most efficient removal spell. And it'll increase in numbers in those spots. You know, when you're against the Glorybringer deck, you're going to be real happy to see a bunch of cast downs in your deck. But I think you're exactly right that this stretches back to Eternal formats as well. Really nice conditional black removal spell that, you know, there's not a ton of legendary creatures floating around the Eternal formats, especially as it relates to modern. As far as legacy, I haven't thought too much about the application there. My guess is probably not. Fatal Push is just better in most spots. You're just better off playing like push, bolt, diabolic edict, and that that kind of right. covers your bases against everything. So, unless you're like strictly sultai and don't want to play abrupt decay for some reason, like I, I doubt I've played go for the throat in my legacy decks before. But I have to, yeah. I, I I think that was before abrupt decay. So, yeah, I don't see this really cracking uh, legacy, but 100% modern, 100% standard, uh, kind of boring. But my number three card, I was a little bit, I think historically, when it comes to the boring cards, I underrate them. This time I tried to remedy that and you scaled back a little bit. So we took the opposite approach. Well, the four cards I have above it are all more impactful and better. So, okay. I, and like, there's also like seal of seal away, which right. uh, I could have on this list. I like blink of an eye a lot. Same, same. Those are all on my 28 cards, but not in my top 10. Right. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I'm going to pick the, like the best removal spell and like put it up there, you know, but I'm going to leave the rest off. Yep. I'm with you. All right. What's your five history of Benalia. Do you want to, do you want to give that a read real quick? One dub dub, uh, saga enchantment thingy one and two are create a two, two read Duke Knight creature token with vigilance. 
And number three is reduke knights. You control, get plus two, plus one until end of turn. Or just just knights, just knights. And just redukes as well. It's it's right on the card. You can't argue with it. Yeah. That. I think this sees play in all white aggressive decks, even where they don't have a hard focus on knights. I think the rate is that good. It enables the knight archetype on its own. It makes that something worth exploring. It makes all future knights worth considering. Uh, this feels like good rate. And I think the fact that it is mythic when if you had asked me to guess this card's rarity during spoiler season, I would have guessed rare points to a lot of power being kind of hidden in this card and, and power that we'll get to unlock going forward. I think this is a, a strong player going forward in standard. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is, I don't know, White has just like a bunch of insano cards in this set. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly one of them. And this has been going in a lot of my decks. I feel like there is just like a lot of uh, value inherent in this, even if you're not getting too much out of the the Knight Anthem, you know, like just from your tutus. Uh, right. You don't necessarily have to be playing other Knights to make this good. But, you know, there are some other Knights in, in the set that, uh, also get the bonus from this, so cool. Yep. Did this make your list? It did. Do you want to tell us what number? Number one. Number one, wow. Number one. Interesting. Uh, obviously, the margins between like these top five cards are all going to be pretty thin. I feel like we're not going to line up in any of the other cards. So No, History of Benalia is just good card. Good card is good, right? Yep. I'm with you. Like, kind of like the last set, Jade Light Ranger was my number one. Ravenous Chupacabra was your number one. Just yeah. good, straight on their face cards, very obviously powerful and very obviously going to see play. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so my number four is uh, kind of cheating. It is a split between Benelish Marshall and Steel Leaf Champion. Is that allowed? Uh, this is the only time you've taken this tact, so I'm going to allow it. In the past, you've done a lot of splitting, <laughs> a lot of grouping. The fact that I've got you down to just one split feels like kind of a triumph, so we'll let it slide. Well, okay, so... Yeah, I mean, I guess I could move like Divest, Inferno, or Impulse off the list and include the other one, but the the whole cycle is all pretty good. I'm not very high on Dreadshade, and right. uh, Tempest Jin is like a very specific, very weird deck that I don't really know what it is, aside from like the Temporal Sundering decks that I've built. Mm-hmm. And I think Chain Whirler is incredible. Yep. Right. So it's it's kind of just like the cycle. And this is why we don't put like dual lands or like the memorial cycles on these lists, right? It's because yeah. like these cards are both supposed to be doing like kind of the same thing just for different colors, and they both do that job very well. Yeah, the hard rewards for being monocolored are are very cool. You know, both the cards you mentioned are in question unquestionably powerful. I if I had to rank them, I think I would go Steel Leaf Champion, Goblin Chain Whirler than Marshall, which I don't think that's a commonly held belief. I think people tend to go uh, closer to the order you're proposing where they really see Marshall as the most impactful. Man, I really like that cast trigger on the Goblin. And in combination with something like Soul Scar Mage, it gets kind of bonkers real quick. You know, totally shrinking your opponent's board on the spot seems really good to me. 3-3 First Strike, really nice body in the format. So 
I don't know. I don't know which one's going to see the most play. I think they're all very clearly costed for standard. You know, the, the mono green beatdown deck got a lot of pieces here. I don't want to harp on oh, that yeah. deck too much because it was very fringy to start with. But you see some really incredible openings out of that deck with the cards we got to add to the mix here. So I don't know. I don't know. It's it's probably a sweet week one deck, right? Like just beat people down, end the game real quick, deal with my 5-4, the game's over. What you got? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean... Uh, week one, people are just always underprepared for stuff like that. And yep. Chain Whirler is definitely incredible. It is definitely just very, very good. I, I don't know. I just, I wanted to highlight the two like kind of new-ish cards mm. that are going to do new-ish things, whereas Chain Whirler is mostly just going to go in red decks that basically existed already. That's fair. So yeah, uh, token decks I've been pretty high on in the past. So History of Benalia, Benalish Marshall, Dauntless Bodyguard, things like that. Like there's a lot of good pickups and then Mono Green has Steel Leaf Champion, Adventurous Impulse, maybe Song of Frailies. Like, there's a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. It's a powerful card. Again, the margins are slim between all these cards. None of these cards are made my top 10, but they all easily could have, for sure. None, none of the, the CCC guys made your top 10. They did not. If I knew I was allowed oh to group God. them, I definitely would have spot, oh, okay. found a spot for them as a group. But since you break okay. the rules all the time, I can't keep up with you. So, Word. All right, what's your number four? Uh... I don't know if I feel good about this one. I think I might actually Ooh. feel pretty bad about it. My number four is Syncopate. I, I was guessing that when, when, when you were talking about Unwind. Yeah, yeah. So Syncopate has been a very important card in the format in the past. The Exile Clause is not meaningless. Uh, in fact, I'd say it's very important for the format as it, as it exists right now. There's a whole swath of decks that are enabled by having access to a two-mana counterspell for anything. Right now, to some extent, Sensor is playing that role. Sensor has its own set of issues. While being a, a fine card, I think that those style of decks will benefit more from a card that can scale into the late game and still be a counterspell rather than you know a card that's only a counterspell in the first three turns. Like You just kind of need a critical mass of counterspells. Syncopate will do a nice job enabling that. We talked about decks that only want to play at instant speed. Syncopate will be a part of that game plan. Uh, does it have flaws as a card? Sure. I mean, they're unmistakable. But historically, the blue X counterspells have almost always been good enough for standard. Uh, you know, this was an, an important card in old Jeskai Flashless. Broken Ambitions was big in Fairies list. So, so all of these cards have good historical precedent for inclusion. I wouldn't hate you for not having this card on your top 10 because I get it, but I do think this is going to see wide enough play that I wanted it somewhere. Having talked about some of these other cards, it feels like four is a little high at this point, but it belonged on my top 10 list. I just am not super sure of the order at which I placed it. Hot take. You ready? Let's hear it. Single paint is awful. Just awful. Just straight awful. No, it, it is contextual. So it matters how the card is going to interact with your opponent and kind of how it interacts with your mana base. So for every untapped land that you have, it gets better. So for every ETB tapped land you have in your deck, Syncopate is going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And the cheaper your opponent's cards are, Syncopate is going to be worse. But if everyone is playing like three, four, five mana spells, it is going to be very easy for Syncopate to basically just be counterspell, at least right. in the early game. Right. Right. But the problem comes from like them being on the play, them playing a two drop, and then like playing another two drop. And you're just like, God, this card stinks. Wrecked. Absolutely right. Right? And and like sensor would would be just as good, except if in that situation it also cycles. So 
I generally am happier playing Essence Scatter and Negate and some mix of those rather than playing with Syncopate, just because like there are too many situations where Syncopate is bad. So I guess given the texture of the format up until this point, and again, everything's out the window now. We have a new format to deal with. So I recognize that this is a flawed mode of thinking to some extent. But you've talked about how you've seen these kind of mid-range blue decks play this arms race where week after week, there's more three mana, four mana, five mana spells. For the length of this format, that's kind of been the MO of most decks. Uh, it's not about playing multiple threats a turn. It's about sticking your tremendous threat. And that's how you just ride the game to victory. In the last weeks of the format, things changed a little bit. You found a lot of success with your red-black deck. Blue-red Godfrey's gift kind of took over. So into that metagame, I get it. Syncopate is certainly not where you want to be, where everyone's got a bunch of cheap cards and you know it's not doing a whole lot. But the theoretical metagame where things keep escalating and getting bigger, you see Syncopate's role. Like you said, it'll often be a hard counterspell in that spot. I, I guess that's why I'm regretting the four ranking a little bit. Like I said, I do think it's going to see play in blue decks. It's going to be an important inclusion in those decks. But you're right that if the meta breaks a certain way, it's going to be very hard for Syncopate to be a good card. Bowman Courier for life. Yeah, Bowman Courier beats the crap out of this card. Right? It makes it look very yes. silly. Dude, I, I saw a modern 5-0 list today that was just burned with four Bowmats. It made me so happy. I think there's no question that card breaks into modern. Uh, I mean, it's already doing so, but I, I think it'll be a widely played card in modern. Like you said, one mana Planeswalker, it feels like sometimes. Like yeah. when your one mana spell draws you five cards in the late game and after it does six damage, that's pretty bonkers. And obviously this is the maximum use case for this card, but just the fact that that card can possibly have that use case is enough to speak to its power level. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, Bowmat embarrasses Syncopate. I'm definitely going to be, especially with this many sets in standard and with Dominaria being as deep as it is, like generally the decks get streamlined and like the curves get lowered and these things like, you know, these super end game, like Scarab God Wars, like they're just not going to happen. Like you're going to get run over before that even becomes a thing. So kind of to that end, I'm, I'm not super excited about Syncopate. If it were five sets standard, then maybe Syncopate would be better. Right. Well, there's always post-rotation. You know, we have to consider these cards outside of their current context as well. So I think it's a powerful option to have in the format, depending on where things go. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that it exists, right? Yeah. Like anytime a new tool like this gets introduced, it's like, okay, cool. Like this is something I can turn to if there's just like a lot of big creatures or, you know, planeswalkers, whatever. But yep. yeah, you got you have so many options for basically like everything right now. Like this, this actually feels like a, a real standard format to me again. Yeah, it's getting big now. A lot of stuff out there. I can't wait to see everything all melded together and where we end up. Yeah, so single pay was on my excess list, but very, very near the bottom. Okay. All right, which was that? That was your four, right? That was my four. My three is cast down. Okay. Uh, my three is Mox Amber. Didn't make my list. So, um, you crazy. Right. So historically to bet against the Mox is an absolute fool's bet. I see some of that happening here again, Mox Amber, not at the bottom of my list. I it very well could have made the tail end of the list because it's a, it's a freaking Mox. So the combo with Tashar should be enough, man. That's just it. That, that does the job for you. Yeah. That's it. The, the Tashar decks are the only decks where I really want four copies of Mox Amber. Any, any other deck where I'm like lightly doing the legend thing, I want two, I think. 
So if I'm of the opinion that Tashar could be a miss, as, as high as I am on the card, I do see a potential for it to be a miss. You could see my reluctance to kind of say Mox Amber is, you know, at the very top of my top 10 when there's only one deck which was really jamming for it. But you're saying that just the presence of Mox Amber as, you know, a little bump of occasional value in these decks, which aren't built around it, are going to be enough to secure this card's place towards the top of your list. It is definitely going to see play. I think so, yeah. And, and it's it's definitely going to be good. It's not like uh, Damping Sphere where it's going to see play but be bad. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Sure, I disagree, but yeah. I think people are probably going to overplay them and probably not play enough legendaries and stuff like that, but it'll get worked out. Someone will win a Grand Prix with a good list or win the PT or whatever, and then people will kind of understand how to build their decks from there. Yeah, I just don't know if this is an effect you can, to be fair... No matter what kind of clauses you put it around, if it's zero mana and gives you a mana at some point, it's probably going to be good enough. At least historically, that's been the case. I mean, look at all the moxes. We have mox diamond. We have chrome mox. We have mox opal. No misses in that group. There's got to be a terrible mox that I'm just forgetting, right? Uh, no. No? That's it? There's no terrible moxes? Both chrome mox and mox opal came out. I was kind of like hoarding them because I was like, all right, these cards are very clearly good. Now is not the time. It is not good in these decks, you know, but at some point they will be busted. Right? Do you see that same kind of use case for Mox Amber or do you think it's just like no. good now? No, I, I think this is different because the legendary clause is way worse than like Metalcraft or whatever. Like the more time goes on, Mox Amber is going to get better and better, but not as quickly as something like Chrome Mox or Mox Opal will be, hmm. you know? This isn't necessarily something I'm going to be hoarding, but uh, if if the card like doesn't perform in the first two weeks and ends up like dropping to fifteen bucks or whatever, like I'm going to pick up a playset if I don't have it already. Okay. Do you have thoughts about this card's potential in eternal formats? Probably limited to modern. I don't think we have any real chance of going back further than that. But you know, I've seen Isamaro Zulus floating around and and things like that. What do you think about the chances of Mox Amber finding success in that format? Arayo, SRAM, Reckless Bushwhacker, like these are these are cards that I'm kind of excited about, but I haven't really gotten to to Bruin yet. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a home for it either, but the presence of one mana legends probably make this card much, much better. You know, the only one we have right now, I'm going to mess her name up. I, I'm not even gonna try. The one mana green legend, you know what I'm talking about. Oh Ovia Pashimi. Something like that, yes, who can tap to make tokens of varying sizes. Not the best card, but you know, if you start putting together some ideal openers when you're including that card in your deck, things can get out of control very quickly. So where there's actual playable one-mana legends and cheap legends, uh, things might get much more out of hand. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess I cut Ovia from my list that I put in my article. How did I only have one Tashar deck in my article? I had two. But I have like 10 other ones built. Why'd I only post the two? <laughs> you're hoarding them. You're, you're keeping all this sweet Tashar information away from the masses. I promise I'm not. <laughs> and the people in my comments section are like also building sweeter decks than me. So Nice. Well, you look, you know, we all have to go somewhere for our information. Some people go to you. I'll go to your comments section. That's where all the, yeah. the true gems lie. So where does that bring us now? What, what are we up to? Mox was my three. Castan was your three, right? So we're at number two. Let's let's hear your number two. I, I think I know what it is. Number two is the Karn Father. Yeah, I was I was hoping that was the case. I would be very sad if Karn was not on your list. Despite my divorce from the liberated version of Karn, I am quite high on this version of Karn. He is my number one card in the set. 
You traded him in for a newer and younger model. Yes, yes. I'm very into the Scion of Urza style cards these days. Liberated is just not doing anything for me. Unreal, man. I guess like technically, timeline-wise, this is the older model. Is, is that how it works? Yeah, well, I guess we're further along in the story now. That makes sense. An older and wiser Karn, if you will. This Karn is rad. I am mostly excited about the uh, Karn minus two. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. The most obvious application where like this gets broken out of control is in decks that really exploit the minus two. So I think this card can make existing archetypes stronger and give birth to entirely new archetypes. We talked a little bit about the Tashar style vehicles decks. I think Karn will probably play a part in those. Karn synergy with Heart of Kirin, we've talked about a bunch. I think it's nice. I can see Karn being a heavy inclusion in modern affinity decks. Using his minus two there seems very powerful to me as a diversified threat. And it's a big threat in that deck. Let's not that's not mince words. You're making giant, giant tokens probably as early as turn two in a lot of spots. So that sounds really good to me. And now there's a legacy deck kind of, you know, harping on some of the same themes. I could see Karn being included in that as well. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think this card just goes back to eternal formats. It's going to be great and standard. I don't think it's problematic even though it could kind of go everywhere, because you're exactly right. The decks where it's really going to shine are going to be the ones that maximize the minus. You can't just use this as a card draw planeswalker. That's not what Karn is about. He's about getting the most possible value out of the minus. Something like black-white tokens, the minus seems pretty good, um, and they need a draw engine anyway. So yeah, a lot of good use cases for the Karn father. Yeah, Karn is tight. Man, I'm very excited to play this in in the the legacy-like man of steel deck or whatever you want to call it right great inclusion there yeah i also like this in affinity like they used to play like tezzeret which is kind of tough on the mana sometimes and it mm -hmm. turns one of your things into a five five this is just going to make a six six on its own so i think that's mostly an upgrade there across multiple uh, turns it's going to do it a bunch of times and then if somehow oh, yeah. that's not enough it's going to go find more cards for you so right. i mean it seems hard to do better than that in affinity as a diverse threat yeah and as as we mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago you can play Karn, plus one it, and just have that card hang out. Uh, and then if your Karn dies, your second Karn can just immediately minus one and get the card back, which is pretty sweet. Yep. Yep. Very cool interaction. Just a great card going forward. I'm excited to see what this card does. I guess I was always excited about this card. I didn't pull the trigger on a pre-order, and now I'm regretting it. because What did they start at? It was like 25, I think, and it's, it's uh, now, last I loved. Yeah. Yeah, we blew it. Yeah. Big stupids. I got History of Benalias when they are eight, so... Okay, Minus. there you go. You got, you got your score. Should Wait, should we pick a... I mean, I still have one more card to reveal. We'll get to that. But should we pick a hot game spec? We nailed it last time. Like, we, we have to live well, up to our last call. You nailed it. You nailed it. Well, you didn't You didn't protest. You were on board. So, you know, I don't need to take credit. We This is a this is a team effort. We do things together. So the game podcast nailed it last time. In, in my defense, I didn't know that the Phoenix came back with haste. Okay, so you learned something across the episode. That's good. Yeah, it, 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 it read much better to me once I realized that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been looking at this stuff, uh, trying to figure it out. Like, I, do, I think Weatherlight is, is pretty reasonable, but like Weatherlight at eight is like, you're, you're not going to get too much out of that, I don't think. All the mythics are like just, just high enough that I'm like, eh. Right. I, I feel like so. prices are, they're, they're close. Like they're, they're not really that far off. There's nothing I really want to hop on right now that I see 
going out of control. History of Benalia is the only one. Like, if this shows up in, like, multiple winning decks, like, it's not, it's not, like, sexy or anything. Like, it doesn't, like, read super sweet uh, for a mythic. So, like right. you said, I'm, I'm like, kind of shocked that this is not a rare, but how is, how is this card not going to be, like, you know, $20, $25? And it's a, it's a four of, too. You know, in the oh, decks yeah. that play, it's almost certainly a four of. Okay, I'm, I'm in on this. This is our spec. I, I decided it right now. This is still a good buy at $12, I think. Um, so there you go. Hot game specs. Hopefully we'll nail it back-to-back sets. The, the rares are tough because everything, like most things are pretty reasonable. So I would expect the value a- among the rares to be relatively flat. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that there's going to necessarily be like a $10 rare or anything. Yeah, the cards I like as, as rares are kind of already, they're already priced a little high. Uh, they're not really stuff I want to jump in on at this point. So I don't know, maybe evaluation was a little bit better here than it has been in the past. I could see Foil Squeeze being a nice pickup, just like as weirdo Eternal cards that might get some value over time. Sure, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of stretching now, but you know that's Tashar's only at three. Immolating Inferno is one fifty. Karn's Temporal Sundering is four. So you have to like if you're high on Immolating Inferno, I think you have to like that at a dollar fifty, right? That seems pretty low. Well, I like it. I, I kind of agree with what you said about like it not being like exile removal and like it not necessarily lining up in in the format as is. If people are playing a bunch of like legendary creatures that do stuff, then this card is good. But like, I don't think it's going to like take over the format or anything. It is just going to be like a two or three of in like one deck. Okay. Uh, Chain Whirler at three when like the Steel Leaf dude is at eight is weird to me. Yeah, that sounds a little weird, but I I think that might be more of a case of Steel Leaf being overvalued than Chain Whirler necessarily being undervalued. Yeah. yeah, I just wonder what the cap is on like the CCC guys if uh like one of them actually breaks out and the rest fail. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Uh Gilded Lotus at five, and that card used to be expensive, so I imagine that will bounce back at some point. A lot of supply there. I'm not sure. I don't know how much of the previous sets Gilded Lotus has been around and were printed, um, but I think they're they're post boom at this point, right? It was in like M something, so there there should be a lot of Gilded Lotuses floating around. Uh, well, let me see the where the Mirrodins were at. Dude, Mirrodins are still like fifteen bucks, so that's sweet Mirrodin art getting all the points. Yeah, that's definitely true. All right, what was the new one? Magic twenty thirteen. Yeah, it's still twelve fifty. So that's wow. weird, I guess. It's- Okay, so maybe a potential buy there, potential buy and hold. Not not necessarily buy, but just like pick them up, you know. Okay. Uh, so for reprints, I no, like Lenore Elves. We can't leave yet. I have one more card. Oh well, crap, man! Hurry up! <laughs> wait, my... wait. What is your card? What is your card? Hold on, I want to guess. You want to guess? It's probably some crappy uncommon, isn't it? No, it's a mythic. Two. It's a mythic. Damn. Phyrexian scriptures. No. Teferi. Teferi. I, I think Teferi is better than it's getting credit for right now. I think the untapped two lands clause is is a big game when it comes to Planeswalker protection. Not to mention, he just has the built-in bounce clause for the instant value. This card strikes me as a powerful, classic control Planeswalker finisher. The emblem's game-winning. I'm, I'm a buyer in Teferi. It seems to do... You know, it's not exciting. It looks like a lot of Planeswalkers we've seen before. It's just like a better implementation of those planeswalkers you compare it to five mana jace and i don't i don't have all my jaces straight i don't remember exactly what he's called but you can see the similarities in that the plus one is draw a card it's got the bounce effect um, except this is a better than bounce effect and it targets all types of permanence so I, i'm a buyer in teferi i know this isn't a super sexy pick even though it's a planeswalker 
but this seems like the correct finisher for blue-white control decks going forward. Yeah, I do think Teferi's good. Teferi was uh, on my list also, but I'm, I don't know. I just hate like mopey blue-white tap-out. I know. As, as a historical archetype, I get your hatred for the, that method of gameplay. It, it totally makes sense. However, it has been successful at many times throughout Magic's history. Um, oh, yeah. And if it will be again, Teferi is probably a big piece of it. Yeah, for sure. Also, you're not tapping out anymore. You get to untap two lands. So there you go. Problem solved. Well, again, the, the question is, what are you doing with the mana, right? Right. Okay. Reprints? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's pretty obvious what the impactful reprints are. Lana War Elves is going to be the big slam dunk. Skirk Prospector has potential applications in modern as well as uh, standard, potentially. Warchief Siege Gang. I don't know if I buy Warchief right now. It needs more support. Siege Gang seems like a potentially interesting recursion target for things like Scarab God or God Pharaoh's Gift, but it might just be worse than other options, to be honest with you. I want Gaia's Blessing to be good. It's not. I I desperately want it, though. Um, But I think that era of magic has passed us by. And then you see potential use cases for Icy Manipulator as well. And that's kind of my reprint rundown. Yeah, I like Llanowar, Skirk Prospector, CGN Commander, and that's it. Okay, no interest in the other cards. And I, I agree that as it stands right now, those cards are not super playable. And Guy's Blessing is just a pipe dream that I know isn't going to come true. So, Yeah, I wish. One day. One, th- one day things will loop back around to Guy's Blessing being good. If it ever actually was good. There has to be a time where, you know, it's not just all rose-colored glasses. I must have been successful at some point in my life with Guy's Blessing. I won a lot with it. Adrian Sullivan won way more than I did with it. Right. Adrian Sullivan with the the Baron archetype that he popularized. One of my oh, oh, favorite yeah. styles of deck building, for sure. Dude, I wouldn't say that he popularized it. No? Am I giving him too much credit? Well, I, I don't think anyone played it aside from him. So like, <laughs> so he, he, he just mastered it and didn't share it with anyone else. No, he shared it. Just no one ever played it. Like, I don't know. Like, he, you spread the good word about the Baron, I guess. But yeah. And no one listened. Yeah, I wouldn't say that he popularized it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the Baron was a sweet archetype. Go read Adrian Sullivan's article about the Baron. It's on Star City. Just just do Adrian Sullivan Baron in your, your Google machine and you'll find him real quick. Hell yeah. Uh, dual lands are great. Memorials are all pretty great. Yeah, no dispute here. I kind of wanted to put Lich's Mastery on my top 10. But it, chose not to. It was in my twenty, my twenty-nine cards. It was, it was part of the initial cut. I could see potential use cases for it. Uh, again, maybe one of those cards that's either bonkers or completely unplayable. It's hard for me to ascertain right now. Yeah, uh, Antiquities War could also just be like a, a great card for a new archetype. And then I think Dauntless Bodyguard is definitely going to see play. And then Sapling Migration is kind of like the sleeper, like under the radar. People don't really know how good it is or like they don't realize how good it is. That's the kicker Sapling spell. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's one G make two Sapling's right. is mostly what it's going to be. Right, right, right. I think all these cards are completely fine. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to point out. Uh, there's some more good removal. Fight with Fire is interesting. Shiv and Fire is interesting. Stuff like Eldest Reborn, Phyrexian Scriptures, which you mentioned, could see some play. I'm not super high on it right now, but I think it could be fine. We didn't even min- mention Lyra Dawnbringer, which is kind of crazy given the ball of stats that she is. But we talked a little bit about how that doesn't line up with modern magic in a lot of ways. But I could still see Lyra making some inroads in the format. I can't wait to start playing with these cards. I'm so excited for the new standard format. It seems like it's going to be really great. 
It's not a Bane Slayer format, dog. That's why Chupacabra sucks. Right, right. And that's modern magic. We've talked about it at length. But things can change. They can, absolutely. And it can still have applications out of the sideboard. And, you know, even given that it's not the Chupacabra format, there still may be a, a spot for Lyra to shine in certain matchups. Fifth Toughness is a lot. It dodges Chandra and Glorybringer. Mm-hmm. No one really plays Harness Lightning anymore. And if they did, they probably couldn't get it up to five anyway. Right, no good energy so, sources. Yeah. You know, she's she's losing out to Contempt, and that's about it. Pretty much of widely played removal spells right now. Doesn't get hit by Legend Blade, so that's a, always a plus. Yeah, the, the legendary sorceries can take her out, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, do we have a question? We do have a question. Let's go. So, Chantel Campbell, who is a recent member of the game podcast discord welcome Chantel. wants to know are there non-magic activities that you do that you think in some way assist in your ability to approach and play magic any non-magic activities that popped into your mind that are really useful for you uh the the cop-out answer kind of is hearthstone okay and and hearthstone like games so they compete for the same amount of time as magic does it's just like you know kind of like leisurely downtime except these games are a lot easier since I can play on my phone and I can't play magic on my phone. So like if I'm in transit, for example, like then I can play this basically for free. But in playing these games, uh, both Hearthstone and Shadowverse specifically, I have learned a lot about playing beatdown decks. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. You know, the the ability to directly attack opponents kind of lends itself to understanding racing and, and when to turn the corner and when to ignore your opponent, all that stuff. When I used to play a lot of Hearthstone, I found popping up quite often. Yeah. So for, for me, it was just like playing a bunch of Murloc Paladin and, you know, figuring out like what the, the normal ways people were trying to interact with me were and how I could basically just like make their turn as least efficient as possible. So in, in Magic, it would be like, okay, you have to play around, like, Settle the Wreckage and play around Fumigate. And now I'm just, like, automatically thinking about those things beca- instead of just, like, oh, okay, like, I'll just, you know, play my red cards and whatever happens happens or whatever. Like, I will try and build my deck w- in such a way with those cards in mind. And I think I'm a lot better at doing that because of playing Hearthstone and, like, just, just getting the reps in, like, playing with, like, uh, an aggressive deck, right? Like, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the same game, but it's, like, the same type of principles and everything. Right. Really interesting point uh, on the heels of a GP top four where you played an aggressive deck. Right. You think you've, you've kind of turned the corner and are you crediting a large percentage of that to Hearthstone? Within like the last year or two, for sure. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I played Mono Red in Denver and I played Mono Red at the Pro Tour and my PT list was not very good. I was very under prepared with the archetype and went five and five, and it felt like two or three of the matches I lost were just straight up my fault. So yeah, I mean, a lot of it was like playing this specific red deck and getting better at it, just like, you know, Hazaret going a little bit bigger and uh, trying to sideboard in into like different configurations, like depending on player draw and stuff. Like I got to that point with that deck by playing Magic, right? And by playing with versions of that deck. Yeah. But I think like the fundamentals are kind of there for Hearthstone because like I'm not going out to tournaments like playing beatdown decks, right? Right. And now I'm just like, oh, okay, like humans seems like a good choice. Like I can totally play that. So I think it has just like helped me broaden my range a little bit. Very cool. So mine's going to be very different from your answer. The activity I would point to for me is running. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm not a huge distance runner. I generally go out and run somewhere between like four and six miles and I try and go every day, but you know, I'm fat and lazy sometimes and definitely don't. But when I am actively running and, you know, getting myself into a, a, a good running routine, I find that that time is an awesome time for me to think about magic. Um, you know, whether nice. I'm thinking about sideboarding plans or if I'm just thinking about the format generally, my mind, you know, part of this is because I'm magic obsessed. So my mind routinely defaults to magic at all moments of silence, basically. Um, and running is kind of like a big, long stretch of silence, which I don't impose upon myself at any other time. Uh, I'm the type of person who needs to be constantly doing something, constantly entertained or engaged. So I don't really get that kind of alone time with my thoughts unless I build it into my day via running. So the opportunity to do that and, you know, by default, spending it thinking about magic is super, super important for me. A lot of my best kind of aha moments, uh, especially in terms of deck selection, for whatever reason, come when I'm running. I can't say exactly why other than the alone time thing, but it's a pattern that keeps repeating throughout my life. And I'm just going to lean into it. And basically, anytime I have a big event coming up that I want to think about, uh, I'll schedule a lot of really long runs for the week and just take advantage of the time. Interesting. So for for me, that sort of stuff happens when <clears throat> when I'm on uh, airplane flights. Okay. I think it is just like the the time to yourself, not really being able to do anything else. Like if I had internet on my on my flights, then if it was like workable and I was able to, you know, like play Hearthstone or whatever, I'd probably just do the thing that seems fun. Right. But instead I'm just like just putting my head down, getting to work, like writing out sideboarding guides, stuff like that. And I think just having that time to myself, like that time where I'm trapped and can't do anything else just forces me to like do my best work. So the moral of the story is if you want to be a better magic player, you have to somehow isolate or trap yourself where you have no other options but to get down to brass tacks. That seems to be a recurring theme uh, across our styles of approach. Unfortunately, the airplane thing will never work for me again because I just went out and bought a Switch, which I imagine will now take up all of my airplane rides going forward. I just don't bring it. I have one. I just don't bring it. I don't have that kind of discipline. <laughs> it's coming with me. I, I'm playing Zelda the entire flight out to Seattle tomorrow. You can't stop me. No, nah, fair enough, man. I won't. Uh, and then when we hang out tomorrow or Thursday morning or whatever, I'll just watch you play Zelda. Sounds sweet. That's game. Good luck.